Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Good evening. I've got a difficult decision. Do I wear glasses to read the script or glasses to read the long-distance slides? Isn't it a precious thing, saying your children maturing in their faith and leading us in praise? It really touched my heart tonight, saying kids that have grown up from within the church now leading us as young uh, Christians. Wonderful to see. Thank you. Now, before I start, shall we pray? Lord, thank you for scripture. Thank you for your living word. Uh, Lord, I thank you that during times of preparation that you will have guided uh, my mind, Lord, and these words. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that it is you that convicts, you that touches our hearts and minds. So I just pray now that you will guide what I speak about, Lord, I just pray that you will cut out things that were not meant to be spoken tonight and that you will uh, reinforce things, that you, a key message that you wanted to get tonight, Lord. So I just pray that my words, Lord, uh, will be your words through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hopefully I've got a slide up here. That's good. Um, last year, um, Claire and I were going out to a party And uh, as we were getting ready, Claire asked me that question that all husbands dread. Uh, No, it wasn't, does my bum look big in this? Because actually we know the answer to that question. Of course, it's an emphatic, no, darling, you look beautiful. The question that we hate is, which dress shall I wear? (laughs) And the reason for that is that we know that whatever answer we give is going to be the wrong answer, isn't it? Because if we say, well, I like the blue one, you'll say, what's wrong with this one? So she asked me this question as as it was. I sucked in my breath. I picked one of the dresses. And then I ran downstairs to choose the wine for the evening, something I'm much better equipped to do. (laughs) And I did notice uh, 20 minutes later when Claire came downstairs, she was actually wearing the dress that I'd not picked. (laughs) Uh, She'd taken a second opinion from, I think, Amy. 
Now, you might be thinking, what on earth has this little domestic issues that we have, what's that got to do with tonight's reading? And I'm, I'm hoping uh, that it'll become clear um, in a minute. Let's see if this works. Yeah. So I think um, the Sadducees have come to Jesus with this question in Luke uh, 20, Luke 20, verses 28 to 33. He's, they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first one married a woman and, and died childless. And then the second and the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. And finally, the woman died too. Not surprised after all those husbands. Uh, Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since all seven were married to her. So at face value, this question is something to do with marriage. And when I was given this scripture and the theme over the series that we've been doing in Luke, actually the, t- the working title was Who Shall I Marry? And I'm hoping that after tonight we'll see that the question posed was a little bit like the dress question. It's a trick question with a, a difficult answer. That's what, uh, that's what the Sadducees were hoping for. And hopefully we'll get to the end of the evening and realize that actually the message is not really about marriage. On my first read, when I first read through this script, the only thing I got from the the story was I knew who I wouldn't marry because if I was the seventh brother and I'd seen what had happened to the six brothers before me, I wouldn't have married her. um, To understand, I think, the, the proper text, I think we need to go back a little bit into Luke 20 and have a look at... Um, the sort of context and the run-up to this trick trick question, because there's been a series of them. At the beginning of chapter 20, the chief priests, the teachers of law, the elders, they're all sat there in the temple courts with Jesus, who's been teaching, and they want to know who is this upstart, this new teacher, and they say, who gave you this authority? And what I love about Jesus is he so often responds to a question, doesn't he, with another question. And so he asks them, well, John the Baptist, where did his baptism come from? Did it come from God or from man? And the religious leaders, they saw that as a trick question. They didn't want to answer yes or no, because if they said yes, then they knew that Jesus would say, well, if... John the Baptist was who he claimed to be he was obviously proclaiming the coming of the Messiah so why didn't they believe him so they didn't want to answer yes but they were also afraid of the people because the people thought John was a prophet so if they said no then the people would stone them so they were in a bit of a a problem giving an answer and so they chicken out and they say I don't know Jesus had silenced them with their question then we move on into verses 9 to 19 the next chunk of of, uh, chapter 20 Uh, Alan preached, touched on this uh, a few weeks ago in his talk and that's the parable of the tenants 
And we've got these, the owner of a vineyard, and we've got these evil tenants. And the owner keeps sending his servants to the vineyard, and they keep beating the servants up. And eventually, the owner sends his son, and they kill the son. And the conclusion of this story is that the owner should come and kill those evil tenants for what they've done and then give the vineyard to other people. And of course, the owner is God. Uh, The servants have been the prophets. We're coming up to the point where Jesus is the son in the story. And verse 19 tells us that the teachers of the law and the chief priests, they knew that Jesus had spoken that parable against them. They were the evil tenants. They the ones that deserved his punishment. And so from that point on, they're looking for a chance to get Jesus into trouble and to have him arrested. But still it says that they're afraid of the people. And so they back off. So the next part of chapter 20, they're still trying to trap Jesus. And they want to have an excuse to have him arrested. And so now they send spies And the spies go and ask another trick question designed to get him in trouble. They want him to say, you shouldn't pay your taxes to Caesar. But of course, the wise teacher is very clever. And he says, no, pay your taxes to Caesar and give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is God's. So again, Jesus has foiled their attempts to get him into trouble. And now we get to our scripture for tonight with another supposedly trick question in verses 27 to 34. Now to understand uh, the question, it's sometimes unhelpful to understand the people asking the question because the Sadducees who are asking this particular question, they had very different beliefs to some of the other Jewish leaders. They had different beliefs to the Pharisees, for instance. Uh, Not all Jewish religious people believe in the same things, just like not all Christians believe all the same things. So to help us understand our our, our text, it's probably a good idea to understand a little bit about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a pretty worldly people. Uh, They didn't really accept a spiritual world. So they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons they attributed everything to free will. It wasn't about God's will, it was about free will. It was about determination and self-drive and self-will. And for them, only the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, were the only things they would consider as, as their scripture. And their whole lifestyle was about being very exact. They had to be righteous and they had to obey all the, the laws in Leviticus and be seen to be righteous. They were very legalistic in their outlook. And most importantly, in terms of the context for tonight's reading, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. So the very question that they're putting to Jesus is based around something that they don't believe in. They're really asking this question about a woman who marries seven brothers. It's designed to cause an intellectual problem with the concept of uh, resurrection from the dead. And I love the way Jesus, in such a short response, corrects so many of these wrong beliefs of the Sadducees. 
And at the same time, in, this, in, in the scripture we've read tonight, he shows them, the people asking the question, that they don't even understand their own scripture. So let's, let's look firstly at Jesus' response. So the first thing he says in verse 34, he says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are deemed worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor will they be given in marriage. If you think about it, when we do our marriage vows, what do we say? Till death us do part. Death is actually when our marriage contract is ended. And Jesus is confirming that when we get to heaven, we will not be married. Jesus has deflected the trick question as an irrelevance. The widow will not be married to any of them because nobody's married in heaven. A man and a woman come together in marriage, and in the old days it wasn't all about love, was it? It was, it was more about a primary purpose of creating heirs, creating offspring, children, That was the whole purpose of marriage, to carry on the family name. And that's why Moses said in Deuteronomy 25 that the widow had to marry the second brother because the first child, the first male child, that came from the the marriage with the brother, that child would take the name of the dead older brother so that his name would not be blotted out from the history of Israel. That was the whole purpose But if you think about it, in heaven, there is no death. Death is finished. So that cycle of birth replacing the people who've died, there's no need for birth anymore. So there's no need for children. And therefore, marriage is no longer needed when you get to heaven. So in Jesus' response, he's confirmed several things. He's confirmed that there's a resurrection age. We'll come back to this, but there was a very important caveat. He says, for those deemed worthy. A really important caveat we'll come back to. He confirms that we get a new body, a new resurrection body. I'll come back to that in a minute as well. And in verse 36, he says that we become like the angels because we can no longer die. So again, he's confirmed with the Sadducees, there are such things as angels. In just a few words, Jesus has very quickly and concisely confirmed all these wrong beliefs that the Sadducees held. Now, I was thinking about this. If you've been married like I have for 20 years, and some people for 50 or 60 years, it seems a little bit sad, doesn't it? The idea that we're married to somebody that we love, and then when we get to this perfect place called heaven, and we're not married anymore, it's sort of sad, isn't it? And I think, well, okay, what, what... comes of our key important relationships and of course in our text here Jesus answers that question too he says we become children of God we become children of the resurrection uh, Paul puts it very eloquently in Romans eight sixteen. he says the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children So if we're children, we are then heirs of God and co-heirs 
with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? What an amazing promise that is. We are heirs of a kingdom. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. I think that makes us princes and princesses of a future kingdom ruled by the king of all kings. Beautiful promise. So we won't be married to one another. We will be still in an important relationship. We'll be brothers and sisters. Now, when Jesus... Uh, responded to questions. We've seen that he, he often asked questions as a response, but he also regularly quoted from Scripture. Uh, with the Sadducees, I think he was really clever because he quoted in this t- 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 text here, he quoted from the only books that they would accept, and that was the books of Moses. And in verse 37, he recounts the story of Moses and the burning bush. And that event occurred, of course, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. And yet God uses the present tense. That's the cleverness of of what Jesus has done here. So in Exodus 3, verse 6, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus had shown the Sadducees their own scripture and then proved to them that even Moses had shown that the dead rise He had proved them wrong and showed them up in their lack of understanding of their scriptures. And I like this picture that we have in the crowd. Many in the crowd responded saying, well said, teacher. And then nobody, because he'd put them in their place, nobody dared ask any more trick questions. Now there's one key verse that I have not mentioned because I could probably we've now gone through the text I could probably stop there but I think I've got to keep going for another 10 or 15 minutes it's in the rule book Um, in verse 38 I think moving away from this sort of trick question that was all to do with marriage we now know the answer about marriage we're not married in heaven we'll be brothers and sisters But verse 38, I think, is the crux of all of this. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And for him, for to him, all are alive. If you think about it, in denying the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees had denied the power of God. And I think, in today's world, there are lots of people who have Sadducee like beliefs. If you think we're constantly bombarded, aren't we, by scientific information presented as if it's fact, and yet much of it is based on a and hypothesis. Um, did you know in recent history uh, they readjusted the age of the universe? They'd been out by a mere 30 billion years. They changed their model and they come up with a different answer. I'm a scientist by background. But we have to accept science can only deal with the natural. Science can only observe what God has put into place. It can't measure or explain the supernatural. It's beyond science. And God is not a thing to be measured or observed. He's a father, isn't he? He's somebody who wants a relationship with us. And it's a relationship that he wants to last forever. God is the God of the eternally living. That's who we have a relationship with. 
And I think our modern day world of intellectualism, it's very, very like that attitude and world of the Sadducees. We're all influenced by it, even as Christians, we're influenced by the world that we live in. And it's very easy, isn't it, to put that concept of angels and demons, what are they? Are, there, are they fairy tale characters and myths and cartoon characters? That's what our world would have us believe. And yet Jesus taught about them. And they have a very real effect and impact in our world today. We need to believe in them because Jesus taught that. So I'm going to just have this last slide up and talk around that. Our key message for tonight is not to do with marriage. It's not to do who we should or shouldn't marry. It's we belong to a God who is all-powerful. And let's think about this almighty, powerful God that we've entered into a relationship with. What does it mean? Firstly, and most importantly from Scripture tonight, God has the power to save us from death. That is the essence of the good news of the gospel, isn't it? It's we're being saved. Sometimes we say, oh, I'm saved. What are we saved from? We're being saved from death, something that most people would be afraid of. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a great read. In fact, homework for tonight. Go and have a read of 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about resurrection, talks about resurrection life, talks about the resurrection body. I'm going to touch on it a little bit, but have a good read because Paul's much more eloquent in terms of explaining it. But it describes the resurrection of the dead and it describes our new resurrection bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 21 and 22, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Death came to us, into the world, through the disobedience of Adam and Eve and was defeated by Jesus on the cross. And our world tells us that all religions are the same. It doesn't matter which God you worship. But it does, doesn't it? The cross is the key difference. Jesus is the only one to have died and then risen. Nobody else. In that act of painful sacrifice, he did something that none of us can intellectualize. He defeated death. He's the only one to have done that. And he's the only one, therefore, who can save us from death. And he offers us life. So by repenting and turning to Christ, we're exchanging that certainty of physical death for the promise of what God wants, is eternal life with him. And basically, Paul tells us the resurrection of Christ and of the dead, it's an essential part of the gospel message. We can't be saved without the death and resurrection of, of Christ. And we can't enter heaven unless we're given a new resurrection body fit for heaven. In 1 Corinthians 15, um, hopefully you'll read this later as well, but Paul describes the new body that we get. He, he describes those who've received Christ will get this, this new body. And he uses an analogy of wheat seed. He says the plant has to ripen 
and then it has to die. The wheat has to die before the seed is scattered for the next crop. And in the same way, our bodies have to die before we can be given a new body. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 39 to 41, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals another flesh, birds another, fish another. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And the splendor of the earthly body is one kind and the splendor of the heavenly body another. We are going to be given a perfect new body. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to get sick. It's going to be imperishable, eternal. I think that's a wonderful promise. Um, I turned 50 last year, and I am so fed up. I go and do a little bit of gardening, and my back aches for days. I go to the gym, and about 20 minutes on the treadmill, and I'm limping for a week. I can't even, I can't even walk in the mountains properly without... It's just horrible getting to 50, isn't it? So Rob's... <laughs> Rob's understanding this bit, isn't he? <laughs> One day, these tired old bodies are going to be replaced by a splendid new body. I just love that. Uh, whatever the state of our physical unhealth, for those of us that have received Christ, we're going to get a new body, a perfect one. Uh, Claire reminded me as we were talking the other day, she reminded me of a, an old pastor's wife um, that we had, lovely lady, but she was quite large. And she said that she'd put an order in for her new resurrection body. Uh, she wanted a size 12. Um, I'm not sure it works like that, but all we know is that in God's grace, it will be splendid. We are going to have an amazing, splendid new body I think it's very easy to think of heaven as some kind of invisible gas type thing where we're kind of spirit and nothing. Uh, we can't probably, our minds aren't big enough, are they, to imagine it, but we're going to get a body, a resurrection body. And I think that's a great thing, particularly when my things ache. Uh, a great promise to hang on to. But there is the other side of the equation, isn't there? And I'm going to come back to one, of the, the one line that Jesus spoke. There's a stark warning because it says, to those who are deemed worthy. That means there are those who are deemed not worthy. And therefore, those are going to not inherit, not inherit a new resurrection body, not enter the resurrection age. That's quite frightening. That's the flip side of this promise. Who are they? They are those who reject Christ. He is the only one who defeated death. He's the only one to have been resurrected, and therefore he is the only way to the Father. And time is running out, isn't it? Our bodies are slowly perishing, and none of us know when our time is up. So I'm going to say, if you're somebody here tonight who's not yet turned to Jesus Christ... This is the key message for you tonight. Death does not have to be the end of you. And now, not some time in the future, now is a critical time for you to think, why not enter into a relationship with the living Lord Jesus? A God who promises you life now 
and a better life and a new body after death. I'm going to pray at the end. And I'll just give you a chance. If you're somebody who's not yet entered into that relationship with Jesus, I'll just pray that. And you pray quietly with me. And I'd love for anyone who, who wants to talk further about that, just talk to me afterwards. Now, as I was preparing this talk, I've done a lot of driving this week, uh, and I kind of challenged myself. I'm thinking, are there any ways in which I am like a Sadducee? And I was thinking about it. I thought, well, I don't, I don't doubt the Lord's power to overcome death. I, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in resurrection bodies. I believe in angels and demons. I'm a scientist and a mathematician by training, and that's what my business was. And yet, I believe also in the supernatural. And then it dawned on me as I was driving around, there are aspects of my life where I'm being a bit like a Sadducee because I'm not trusting the power of God in my life. Okay, it might not be about resurrection, but there are other aspects of my life where I've got a powerful God in me. Why do I not trust him enough? So, for example, and I think this is common of many of us, for example, I prayed as I prepared this talk over the last month. I prayed that the that the Lord would direct and guide my, my thoughts. As I stood up tonight, we prayed that the Holy Spirit would convict and touch hearts. This is not me being eloquent. It's God's Holy Spirit bringing Scripture to life, isn't it? That, that's what we come to church for, not to just hear an eloquent speaker. We're here... T- for the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts and minds. So if I truly get into my mind that it's not me, Simon Howard, being clever trying to to talk, but actually it's the Holy Spirit and the power of God working through me, why do I feel nervous and anxious about doing this? It's a very nerve-wracking thing. Amy was nervous leading worship tonight. But if we're doing things in God's power, we should just trust him that it's him at work. And the more we focus on the fact that it's God's power at work, not our cleverness, then we're released into a sense of peace as we trust that it's God doing it, not ourselves. Things go wrong. Anxiety takes over when we strive in our own strength. And I'm afraid that's one of my weaknesses that God's keeping on working on. So I think the more we focus on the power of God, the smaller our own issues get. You know, he has, God has the power to forgive and to bring about forgiveness. So that hurt and that anger in my extended family, that can be overcome. God's got the power to heal, a supernatural power to heal. And we've seen it with Simon. God has a power to heal. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him with my physical health. God is the source of love. His love is beyond measure. He is a power of love that can overwhelm us. So he can restore my broken relationships. He can comfort me when I'm lonely or afraid or grieving. Jesus is the ultimate source of strength. So in him, I can do anything. If we had that attitude, we have got the living Lord Jesus. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. 
And therefore, we can achieve and do anything. I, I think we need to think more about how God can do stuff through us because it's him at work in us. He knows all my issues at work. He knows my stresses. He knows how much stress I can cope with. So in him, I can do anything. The Lord has the ability, the power, to wash away my anxiety and replace it with peace. And he wants us, if you think about it, he wants to lavish us with treasures from heaven. So why are we worried about our earthly possessions? You see, all those different areas will all have different things. But all of us, to some extent, can be a bit Sadducee-like in where we doubt God's power. And the more we go back to the source and say, God is all-powerful, the more we will live in strength and peace as he does his work through us. Can you see God has so much more to give us? If only we will trust him. And I think when we forget that he's all-powerful, all-loving, all-seeing, we miss out on his blessing. Now, I want to, I'm going to close in a second. I've probably been talking for too long. I've not timed it, but um, it was 25 minutes, Neil, before. Um, I want to talk, touch on one area of the supernatural power of God. That's what we're talking about. It's the supernatural power of God. And I want to touch on one area which is the power of God. We've just been thinking about the power of God in our personal lives. But what about the power of God in church? There are many people who would be sceptical, very sceptical about the supernatural spiritual gifts. The Bible talks about Pentecost and the power of God fell upon thousands of people in a crowd and they fell down on the floor as if drunk. They started speaking in strange tongues. The Bible describes prophecy words of wisdom, miraculous healings, the driving out of demons. And those are all New Testament events. They're all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit hasn't gone away. So by denying that they're relevant today, we're to some extent doing what the Sadducees did. We're denying the supernatural power of God. And there are people in churches uh, who experience those sorts of things just as they have for 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit is still at work. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we should not put out the Spirit's fire. We should not treat prophecy with contempt, but we should test it. Yes, there's a human, can be a human side to it, but we should allow it to happen and then test everything. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says we should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And he says, yes, he'd like everybody to speak in tongues, but he'd rather they prophesy so that the church may be edified. These supernatural gifts are there for the edification, the building up of the church. And I don't know about you, I'm going to close now, but I, I don't know about you, but I want to see the power of God through the Holy Spirit, at work in my personal life and in my church. I want to see God's outpouring, to see, to, to see miracles, to see amazing stuff of God going on. He still has that power, and we just need to trust him and let him get on with it. Let me close with one of my favorite verses from the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's pray. You may be somebody here, I spoke earlier about those who do not inherit uh, that resurrection body. If you've not yet received Christ, um, I'll just pray. And, And if that's you, if you want a deeper relationship with Christ, if you want to turn from your old life and enter into a kingdom where you become a child of God let's just pray this with me Lord thank you that you are the source of love thank you that you've defeated death on the cross thank you that you rose again Lord thank you that you have defeated death and thank you Lord that you promise us you promise us eternal life Lord that when these physical bodies die Lord that we're raised again into a new life with a new body with you. We thank you for that promise, Lord. And if you're somebody who's not received that, just, just pray this with me. Lord, I turn from my past. I accept what you did on the cross. I accept that I'm a sinner and I've led my life without you. And I turn to you, Jesus, now. I accept what you've done on the cross. And I turn to you with newness of life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my life. I want you to be the center of everything that I am. Holy Spirit, come and fill me now and guide me all my days. Thank you, Lord. And there are people here that will be struggling at work or with other issues of forgiveness or unforgiveness or hurts let's pray for you as well Lord thank you that you are a power at work in our lives thank you that you are love and when we're hurting Lord when we're lonely when we're grieving when we're stressed when we're not coping at work Lord you know every aspect of our lives and I just pray now that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit that you will fill us with your power to heal and to forgive and to love. We're nothing, Lord, without you. And we thank you that you become love in us. So we just lift ourselves to you. And Lord, would you be greater and may we be smaller in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.